Today for our scripture passage, we are looking at Exodus chapter 14. We're continuing with the story of how God forged his people Israel. And uh, in this, we're just looking at some selected verses in Exodus 14. And I'm going to be reading that in a, in a little bit later, um, just right in the context of the, of, the, of the greater story. So we're not going to read the scripture passage quite yet, but we are going to pause for a moment and ask God's spirit to guide us uh, before we do. Let us pray. Good Heavenly Father, Lord, you have given us your spirit to guide us and direct us because, Lord, without it, we are lost. Without you and without your hand upon us, we are the lost sheep, Lord, who wander in the wilderness. But, Father, you have not left us lost. You have given us that Holy Spirit. You have given us your word. You have given us your instruction to guide us and to transform us. And, Father, as we look into your word today, we ask that same spirit that inspired these words would inspire us again. Father, open our hearts and minds that as we hear, as we read, that we may see and that we may understand. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as some of y'all know, and many of you probably have guessed, I am a big fan of history and mythology, and uh, especially mythology. I love mythology, and I know it probably doesn't sound good for a Christian preacher to stand up and say that he loves reading pagan mythology, and there's been other Christians that have kind of wrestled with this, but I've got to admit, there's some entertaining stories. They really are some interesting stories, and even as a young child, I loved reading all the Greek myths and the Roman myths and Egyptian myths and the Norse myths. They always, always provided endless fascination for me. And I learned as I got older that not only are these stories entertaining, they're also very educational. You can actually learn quite a bit from these old myths and stories. And if nothing else, you actually learn a lot about the people who wrote them. Uh, some of the other uh, 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 studies of myth, like Joseph Campbell and uh, psychologist Carl Jung, actually discovered that myth tells us a lot about psychology tells us a lot about the human heart and the human mind, and we find them embedded in these ancient stories. Now, there's one kind of story that's always fascinated me, and that's the story of a city's origin. Like any city you think of, any great civilization, the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, Babylonians, when they invented their stories, and I do believe they were all invented, about where they came from, they always had these huge epic beginnings. And not just a good story epic beginning, it was an epic beginning that told them that they were a great and awesome people. Because around there in the Middle East, in the Mediterranean, you'll find that every city and every nation, when they tell their story about where they came from, they all claim to be descended from gods. That we're not like these other people out there. This is how they were created. We, however, have our trace, our lineage, all the way back to a god. Almost every city did that. Athens, they believed that they were founded by Athena, but they were actually descended from the god Hephaestus. Ancient Rome, they were founded by a set of twins, Romulus and Remus, and they believed that Romulus and Remus were the son of Mars, the god of war. In Babylon, they thought that they were descended from Baal, the great god of heaven. In Egypt, e Egypt they traced their lineage to a god named Ra. Happened all over the place, all over the Middle East. 
You hear the stories of these peoples that were descended from gods. And you've got to imagine, it had it made for great civic pride. I mean, we look back and say, well, we're descended from George Washington and the Patriots and all those fighters of the revolution, and we're proud of that. Imagine if you were taught that you were descended from a god. Imagine growing up in Rome as a child and your mother telling you, you've got the blood of the god of war running in your veins. You would think, wow, I must be a mighty warrior if the god of war has his blood in my veins. And so it's no surprise the Romans were very warlike people. So you got that all over the Middle East, all over the Mediterranean, these people that claimed they were descended from gods. And then you've got this little Jewish nation. And they have a very, very different story. Their story is epic in its own way, but it's very different from the rest. It has some humble beginnings. For the ancient Israelites didn't say that they came from gods. They actually said, well, we came like everybody else did. We were made just like everybody else. We were crafted out of the dust, just like you and me and everybody on the earth. And they had an interesting origin story, too, because they weren't descended from gods. They said, we are descended from slaves. What an interesting way to think of yourself. I was descended from slaves. Why would you make a story like that up? And that's often brought up to skeptics. You know, there are a lot of skeptics who read the story, and the, and the first things they'll say is, oh, this is made up. This Moses, the Exodus, nah, they just made that stuff up. But if you were going to make a story up about where you came from as a people, would you say that you came from slaves? Because you know what the culture around you would think. Well, if you came from slaves, you have the blood of slaves running through your veins. Well, that probably means you were meant to be slaves. If you were meant to be strong and free, you'd have the blood of gods like us. Why would you make a story like that up? Skeptics also like to say that, that the Jewish people just borrowed stories from all around them. But there's nowhere else, nowhere else in the area do you have a people saying they came from slaves. Nobody would say that. Nobody would make that kind of story up. Like I said, mythology can be very educational. It can be very insightful. And even the story of God about how he made his people Israel. There's a lot of insight that we can learn from that as well. It can tell us a lot about who God is and how we become his people. Now, we've been talking about that already, about how we become God's people. We've seen that it starts with a promise. It involves some wrestling with God and wrestling with our faith. It requires a lot of trusting in him, even when things don't seem to make sense for us. But they were coming to the most, absolutely most important element in becoming the people of God. That is an act of salvation. That is how we become his people. It is through an act of salvation. And there is no becoming his people without that. We cannot be can't transformed. We can't be made into his children without this act of salvation. It is absolutely critical, and I cannot emphasize it enough how important this is. 
Not that we just believe that God is there, that we believe that Jesus lived, but that we accept that we live in this act of salvation. You see, Christianity is not an idea. It's not a set of beliefs. When you're a Christian, you just don't kind of accept these, this metaphysical reality about God. It, it includes that. We have beliefs, obviously. But that at the heart and soul, it's not what it is. Christianity is not a moral system either. It's not a list of things to do and things not to do. Of course, we have that. It's part of it. But essentially, that's not what our faith is. Our faith as Christians is an act of salvation. It is accepting and living in the act of divine salvation. That's how we're made. And that's why God picked a nation of slaves to be his people. So he can save them. And in saving them, he makes them his own. See, we know this. God actually didn't really start working with Israel and start making them until they were slaves. He didn't give them the covenant. He didn't give them the law when they were a relatively free people, when they were a small tribe wandering around Israel. He waited until they were slaves. He waited until that moment for, for, that, for, that, for his own purpose and for the very purpose that he could save them. And in saving them, he could make them his own. See, the story we read here is Abraham. He receives the promise of God, and he has his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob. And Jacob wrestles with God, and Jacob's son Joseph is the one that took all the people of Israel to Egypt to live. And here we get out of Genesis and now into the book of Exodus, and it says that Israel lived in this land called Goshen. And they were given this favorable land, and they, and they were very prosperous. God blessed them. They multiplied. They were, they were very rich. And as time went by, it said there was a Pharaoh one day who didn't remember who Joseph was. And he didn't remember the debt of gratitude that he had towards the Israelite people. And this Pharaoh looked down at this land of foreigners, because they weren't Egyptian, they were all Semites or Israelites. And he looked down at them and he, he saw a foreign people in his nation taking his wealth and threatening his power. And so his solution to this is, well, we got to do something to keep his people down. We're going to enslave them. And so he enslaved all the Israelite people. He made them labor for him. He made them work hard. But then to his, to his, uh, you know, his chagrin, he finds, oh, no, these people are actually doing better. They're still multiplying. They're still being blessed. They're still prosperous. So he says, let's make them work harder. And so he made them work harder, and they still prosper. And he said, okay, let's give them awful working conditions. He gave them terrible working conditions. He's still prospering. And so Pharaoh finally, finally takes drastic action. He says, we've got to do something about these Hebrew people. Let's start killing every male that's born. That'll put a damper on things. And so he takes his program of trying to kill all the, the, the male children that are born. And it's, it's only somewhat successful because the midwives, of course, they don't want to do it. Nobody wants to kill a baby. And so some of them survive. But they're being cruelly oppressed. And then one day this woman, she has a child and she's afraid that the Pharaoh is going to kill him. So she puts her child in a basket and sets him adrift on the Nile River to escape, escape being killed. Now God's watching over this basket because the baby inside has got an important destiny to fulfill. And God watches over the basket and the basket, it, it, uh, it runs ashore on the banks of the Nile. And who picks it up but the Pharaoh's own daughter? 
She picks it up, she takes the child, and she names him Moses. And Moses is a Hebrew word, means from the reeds, because she picked him out of the reeds. So she names him Moses, and she raises him as her own child. However, Moses is raised, he knows that he's different. He knows he's not Egyptian, that he's Hebrew. And he's, he's raised in the Pharaoh's household, and at some point when he's an adult, he's, he's wandering, or he's looking around, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And I guess some kind of racial pride kind of rises in him, and he goes to defend his countrymen, and he kills the Egyptian. And once he kills the Egyptian, Moses fears for his life, so he runs away. Runs away, leaves Egypt, goes across the wilderness to a place called Midian. And when he's in Midian, he settles down and makes a life for himself. He finds a wife. He gets a job as a, as a shepherd. And he's working for his, uh, his father-in-law, Jethro. And he starts to build a good life. And for many, many years, Moses lives in Midian. And then one day, when he's out uh, tending his sheep, he has an encounter that changes his life and the history of the world forever. He's out there tending his sheep, and he looks and he sees a bush that's on fire. It's on fire, but it's not burning, as in the leaves aren't burning. It's just this fire, and he's looking at this, and it's very strange. And so he turns aside to go approach this, this strange spectacle, and a voice comes from the bush. It says, Moses, take your sandals off. This is holy ground, and it's the Lord God. Speaking to Moses out of the burning bush, he says, Moses, I've heard the cry of my people Israel. They're sorely oppressed, and I'm going to save them. And guess what? You're going to help me. Moses' first answer is, I don't think so. Not me. You got the wrong guy. I don't know who you think I am, but I'm not the one for the job. God says, no, you are the one for the job. You're going to do it. There's a big story back and forth. You know, God gets in the way. Moses doesn't. So he goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you got to let God's people go. Well, Pharaoh's not going to let go of his cheap labor source. And so God knows this. And so they begin to send plagues on Egypt. All kinds of plagues. He turns the Nile to blood. There's a plague of frogs, a plague of locusts, a plague of hail, a plague of darkness. And time and again, the Pharaoh says, okay, Moses, take your people. Take them and go. But then, but then God says he hardens Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh says, no, no, change my mind. Can't go. And he, and he does this on purpose, God does, so that people will be able to see his salvation. He says, I'm going to do something big, and I want you to see it. But what first has to happen is Pharaoh's got to be stubborn. And so they do this again and again, until finally the tenth plague is the death of the firstborn. God sends the angel of death onto Egypt and hits every house. And the firstborn of every house dies. The only ones that are saved are the Jews who remember but told by God to take blood and paint it on the door so the angel of death passed over those houses. And for to this very day, the biggest celebration of the Jewish calendar is the festival of the Passover. They remember the angel of death passed over their houses. Well, Pharaoh's own son dies in this plague. And so he says, Moses, get your people, get them out of here. I never want to see your face again. And so the Hebrew people have gathered their stuff and God actually makes it so they, so they get all this gold and wealth from the Egyptians and they flee. And they're going across the wilderness. And as they're leaving, Pharaoh still, his pride won't let him go. God hardens his heart again. He says, I'm not letting these people go. They're not getting the best of me. And he calls his army, the chariots, the soldiers. They go out, thousands of them. It says he had 600 chariots. And they go charging after the people of Israel. 
Now the people of Israel have gone through the wilderness at this point, and now they've gone up to the Red Sea. So they've got the Red Sea here, and now the Egyptian army coming up behind them. And they're trapped. They're trapped. And here's is at this point, is at this point that God pulls off the greatest escape the world has ever seen and still has not seen yet. This first mighty act of salvation. This is what we're looking at, Exodus 14. Looking at selected verses here. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to the, to the right hand and to their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord and the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Trapped on the sea. 
God divides the waters of the Red Sea. The Israelites walk safely through. And as the Egyptians pursue, the water falls down upon them, wiping out the Egyptian army. That is how God moves people. He does it through salvation. There's no other way he does it. That's why he chose a nation of slaves. Because they're the ones that needed to be saved more than anybody else. That's why he chooses sinners. Because sinners need to be saved. See, when God saves us, when our relationship with God begins as an act of salvation, that is going to define the relationship forever after. Through an act of salvation. And because that defines our relationship, we can't say God chose us because we were great. He can't chose us because we were smarter or because we were better looking, because we were more worthy, that we were more powerful, that we were stronger. Because he saves us. And when he saves us, nothing. He saves us who are sinners. And he came to seek us out for that very reason. In the Gospels, Jesus was, was very forthright about it. He says, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come here for the good people. I came for the bad guys. I came for the sinners. Those are the people I want. See, when he does this, we realize our utter dependence on him. When he does this, we realize that we are nothing and we have nothing without God. That's why we always have to ask him for everything. And that's why it's okay to always ask God for things. Never feel bad about having to ask God for things. That's the way he made it. He made it that if we want anything, we need to ask him for it. Because he is always the father, we are always the child. He is always the God, we are always the human. He's always going to be the creator. We'll always be the creature. He has everything. We have nothing without him. We forget that if we focus on our own achievements. And we do that after a while. We're very grateful when we're saved at first, but after a while, we start to think about how what a good job we've done. Oh, and look at how we used to be. We're not like that anymore. And let's look at these other people out there. Come on, those who started on them. How can they not see the awful wrong things they're doing? I just don't get it. We forget where we came from. And so God sends us reminders every now and again that we have to remember that we came from slaves. We didn't come from the blood of gods. We didn't come birthed by heroes. We came from slaves. And we would still be slaves wasn't for him. When God creates a relationship with us through salvation, he's making us depend on him. He's reminding us this is, a, this is a relationship of faith, not works. Nothing you did to deserve this, but this was just my grace giving it to you. If it was our effort, it would be different. If it was our effort, we could trust and believe in ourselves, but he has actually designed it so we have got to put everything on him. 
And we've got to get to a point where we realize, Jesus, if you're not Lord, if this isn't real, then I'm in big trouble. Because I can't do it on my own. Christ, it's you or it's nobody. There's this great moment in the, the passage. I don't know if you look. I don't know if you noticed it when I was reading it. Where it talks about how little Israel had to do to be saved. I don't know if you notice it. Here it is. It's in verse 13 and 14. Israel's bear, I mean, Egypt's bearing down Israel. They're bearing down. They got them trapped between the sea. And then, of course, Israel starts complaining. Moses, you brought us here to die, didn't you, Moses? You're just going to kill us. Why don't you leave us in Egypt, Moses? This is so awful. And Moses responds to him. Look at verse 13, what he says to him after their complaint. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he is going to work for you today. These Egyptians you see, you're never going to see them again. The Lord will fight for you. And here, look at this part. This is what he says what you have to do, okay? This is your job. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. God is going to save you. You know what your job is? Go over there, shut up, and watch, okay? Just keep quiet and watch what God is going to do for you. You know, I've actually heard people complain before that salvation through Jesus is too easy. And they actually will reject it because of that. They're like, nah, it's, nah, it's too easy. All you have to do is accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you get saved. No, that, that doesn't make sense. That's way too easy. I think what they're really complaining about is that makes me too dependent on him. That's what I don't like about that scenario. Jesus does everything and I do nothing. And if I don't earn my salvation in some way, then it's not my right anymore. See, if I work for it, and if I earn it, then salvation is mine by right. But if God gives it to me, if he just gives it to me, and I don't do anything, I just got to sit there and be quiet and watch. That means I owe him everything. And who wants to be in a relationship like that? Given the choice, we want to be in charge. Given the choice, we want to be the heroes of the story. We don't want Jesus to be the hero and us to depend on him. I want to be the hero of my story. Given the choice, we want to say the blood of God's runs in my veins. But for the people of God, the blood of God's do not run in our veins. We have the blood of slaves. That's how this got started. The truth is everybody is a slave. Whether you admit it or not, we're all born and we all come into life, life as a slave to sin. If anything makes us different at all, it is through the grace of God we have come to realize that we were slaves to sin. Through the grace of God we have come to understand how dependent we are on Him. Through the grace of God we have come to understand that we are not great or mighty, that we are not descended from gods or kings or heroes. We realize and we understand that we are creatures of dust. And one day, we're going to go right back to being dust. We understand we're sinners.
fallen, and that we're broken. And we can't save ourselves. This is the defining characteristic of our relationship with God. A people saved by His mighty hand. Yeah, it might not have that same epic beginning of being descended from a god or being the hero in our own story. But I'll tell you this, it's got a great ending. Because what more epic, thrilling tale can there be than the greatest underdog story ever? People who started out as slaves, saved, set free, sanctified and transformed. One day, one day they grow up to be the people of God. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.